0: All right. Welcome everyone. Welcome to episode 15 of The Social Brain. Today we're talking about the will, the uh, self-control, and grit, and all related topics. And I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone. I host, or I run the channel Sense of Mind, and I co-host this podcast, The Social Brain, with Taylor Guthrie over here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So this is going to be, I think, a really... Uh, interesting addition to, to what we, we just did on this last episode. Um, so, I mean, everybody wants to achieve, or I assume everybody wants to achieve some kind of meaningful change in their lives, uh, whether that's physical health, mental health, uh, changing social situations, breaking bad habits, whatever it is, and uh, in our last episode, we talked a lot about how change is possible, uh, and that's that's a really important. I, and I think it's like anybody listening should really reflect on that. That that is kind of a new idea that we can change as adults, and that gives you this this power. It shows you what's possible, right? But what we didn't really get into was kind of the process of that. We talked about it being hard, whatever, but you know. Every time the new year comes around, you have all these people setting these new year's resolutions. One out of every four of them doesn't even make it the first month, right? Four weeks. And you have 10% actually makes it through the year, instigating those changes, developing new habits, whatever it is. And by the end of that year, those new habits are easy for them, right? It was really hard at first. And I don't want to like, like anybody... Like you see them doing these things like going to the gym and it's just like, oh, that's just a gym person. It's not hard for them. It was. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And so we really want to focus on what is it that sets these people apart? Is it just that they are these freaks of nature that just have this ability that we don't? Uh, Or is this a learned skill? Is self-control something you can get better at? Is uh, long-term planning and like actually having perseverance and passion something that you can build? Uh, and the science is showing that, that that's true. That is the case. Uh, you have Walter Mischel, who we'll talk about. Uh, he's amazing. He did the marshmallow test. He's like in his 80s now. And the one thing that he says from all the work that he's done in his entire career is that the most important thing, the most important takeaway is that this stuff is learnable, that you can you can teach children self-control, you can teach adults self-control. Uh, and there's, I think right now is this amazing time in the field where this research is is very much kind of blossoming uh, and showing us really cool strategies for achieving this. Uh, we're learning tons about how the brain works and how it influences all of this stuff. So, uh, so buckle up. We're going to cover a lot today. Uh, we'll start with uh, maybe a couple of strategies and some brain stuff. And then at the end, stick around because we have a lot of really cool um, kind of cutting edge strategies that are working in classrooms, working for adults, working in the workplace. So
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that is a great way to introduce it. And this is going to be super fun, interesting topic. Um, Everybody listening, uh, watching this live stream, just feel free to throw comments and questions in the chat. We want to get to as many of those as possible, answer questions about brain or willpower or self-control, anything that we talk about here. Um, So yeah, just feel free to uh, type those in and we should get to those as many as possible. Um, But like you said, maybe we want to kind of talk about the the broadest strategies, the biggest, like overarching (laughs) ways of thinking about how to actually control yourself, how to like change things in your life. How do you how do you make those new pathways, those new things happen?
1: And this i mean this whole show is about insight like that's really what we enjoy doing is is like bringing these tools to you guys so that you have something to to kind of reflect on and think about and something that that has really kind of been a big topic in this field for a long time uh is this distinction between the will and the way right uh whenever you're trying to achieve any type of change uh, you know, you have to know how to do it, right? You know, have to know the way, uh, but you also have to have the willpower, right? The perseverance, the the kind of focus on the end goal to actually get there. Uh, and there's some really interesting research that's, that's been done on kind of what each of these kind of, what role each of these plays, right? Because uh, you can think about the way, right? Knowing how to change is really important for technical things that you need to do. Like, I need to learn how to become a doctor, or I need to learn how to play an instrument. You don't just like pick it up and know how to do it, right? You have to figure out how. Uh, And that's really helpful for those kind of things, but it's not helpful for eating healthy, (laughs) right? Like all of us know that if you eat a sixth donut, That it's probably not good for you. The fifth one Uh, is fine though. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So the way in those situations uh, isn't really what achieves meaningful change, right? Uh, You can't just tell people that smoking is bad and all of a sudden people are going to stop smoking, right? Uh, And in those cases, what looks like maybe more powerful is kind of the, the will, right? having the perseverance, having the end goal in mind, knowing that like I'm doing this for a a meaningful purpose, right? And I can see into the future. I can see that if I stop doing this now, that something good is going to come. And that is one of our greatest superpowers as human beings is our ability to engage in mental time travel, to see what the future may look like if we do X, Y, and Z right?
0: Yeah, that's, that's such a great way of thinking about it. And I feel like a big part of that uh, of kind of building the will is getting really clear about what your values are, like what you actually value and what you you really want. Because I think, like a lot of the things we're going to talk about, if it's, you know, whether it's uh, trying to eat healthier or start exercising or um, anything like that, that it almost seems like sometimes it it imposes a a sacrifice on your life. Like you have to take away these delicious foods that you want to just like the sixth donut, you know, you got (laughs) to stop. Um, But, or you got to do something that's painful, like exercise, or, um, you know, if you're afraid of public speaking and you have to do a public speaking thing, like practicing that can be painful or difficult, But i think getting really clear about what what did it why are you doing it in the first place what is really the thing that you're after that you value that makes it worth doing in the long run and like taylor said like like you said it's the the long-term view like i'm going to be happier healthier individual if i you know systematically reduce the number of donuts i eat every day even though there there feels like there's this sacrifice to it but i think in like a long run sense they're not so much so just that's sort of like a meta point that i think getting really clear on what's valuable to you um and then as i think what we're going to get into here is like kind of making that a part of who you are really seeing that as as part of your identity
1: yeah. And we'll get into kind of the brain mechanisms that are giving that a lot of support. Uh, identity is, is huge. I mean, this is something that, that I personally study. I have a lot of kind of opinions about where the research in that is going, but uh, I've always hated the idea of a diet because uh, diets are just so short-sighted. It's, it's that I want to lose 20 pounds and great, you just lost 20 pounds and now you're eating your sixth donut again, right? Uh, because you don't, have, you don't have a long-term goal anymore. Once that goal is complete, now it's just like, oh, what am I gonna do? If instead the strategy is I'm a healthy person and I'm going to build that into my set of values, I'm gonna remind myself every day that I'm healthy, I eat healthy, I do healthy things, that's who I am. You start to build these pathways in your brain that start to recalculate the value of the things in your environment where it's like oh i'm seeing things through a healthy lens now that donut doesn't have as much value those carrots have a lot more value uh and there's a lot of i mean that's this is like andrew was saying this is kind of a broad way of talking about these things we're going to get into some more nitty-gritty uh in the moment strategies near the end but Something that's really interesting to think about, uh, there's work done by actually one of my advisors at the University of Oregon, uh, Elliot Berkman, uh, really, really influential in kind of change behavior research, looking at the brain, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, And he had done a ton of research into this whole the will and the way stuff. Uh, And that's where he was trying to find like where the divide was and which one was good for what thing. And something really interesting fell out of his research that they weren't actually looking for. Uh, And it's something that they call planfulness that it's not necessarily just knowing what to do or having some kind of long-term view of what you want in the future. It's great if you can see yourself in the future, but you're not gonna get there unless you have a plan. And the people that score highest on measures of planfulness are ones that have the highest rates of achievement of consistently going to the gym or going to the gym more or meditating more or eating healthier food or stopping smoking tobacco. They're ones that implement if then contingency plans. If this happens, then I'm gonna do this. If this happens, I'm gonna do this, right? You're thinking through all of the steps, right? You have this end goal, but then you have all of these intermediate little things that need to happen for you to get there. And if you're not spending time meaningfully thinking about those individual steps, your brain has nothing to track.
0: That is so, yeah, that's so interesting. Those if-then statements and and uh, thinking about contingencies and what could go wrong. And I think, though, that, you know, maybe a cautionary note is like, you can kind of get into that analysis paralysis mode where it's <laughs> like, okay, well, this could go wrong and that could go wrong. And you go down these rabbit holes, <laughs> these like endless, infinite, you know, trails off into nowhere where you're, you're thinking mm-hmm. about just what are all the possible ways this could go wrong? What am I going to do? And for some people, and I know this like from my own experience, it can lead to that, like I said, analysis paralysis, this feeling of like, there's too many, there's too much. So I'm just not even going to do it at all. But have, but I think you're completely right. Like that, that balance of what's the what's the algorithm that I have to follow to make this happen? And then what are the likely, you know, possible scenarios? And then what would I do uh, if those, if the bad thing happened? Like um, it's just making me think of in in therapy for, for people who I'm not a therapist, but I've I've been in therapy (laughs) uh, for people who catastrophize um, about things like the worst thing, you know, something, if something bad happens it's like the worst thing ever one of the strategies you use is thinking about okay well if that bad thing happened what would actually be your plan of action how would you actually deal with that and a lot, a lot of the times when you actually think through what what you're worried about and then like what you would actually do what are the actual likely scenarios the the you know contingencies that could happen and then what would be your response to them it It makes the whole thing a lot more doable or at least a lot clearer about, you know, reduces the uncertainty factor.
1: And you got to realize, so something that I mentioned, I kind of opened last episode when we talked about neuroplasticity with this metaphor about building this path through the forest and you have these bad habits and the more you do them, the, the kind of easier it is to walk that path when we're talking about these contingencies and making change in your life, that's you stepping off of this really nice path that you've made, right? This thing that you do every day, sleeping in till 11 o'clock, eating six donuts, whatever it is. And when you go on that other path and you have these contingencies, if this happens, then I'm gonna do this. If this happens, then I do this. A lot of those are gonna be failures. A lot of them are gonna be things that feel like they're setting you back. And every time that happens, that old path looks really nice like oh i'm just gonna go back to sleeping in i'm gonna go back to to not working out or not doing whatever i can and that's really where it's it's more it's not just having a plan it's not just knowing what to do it's not just having will it's kind of this combination of all of them that really helps you become successful because having that plan has to be combined with the will it has to be combined with this clear purpose of like i'm doing this because I have this end goal in mind. And if I go back to that cushy path that I used to walk, that path goes nowhere, right? It leads me to an unhealthy future. It leads me to poor choices, poor social outcomes, right? I'm doing this for a reason. I'm doing this because I want to be
0: this kind of person. That's such a good way. And I think, you know, maybe a like another part of that is the mindset, is the, um, the, the growth mindset versus fixed mindset, the like, um, Carol Dweck, Mm -hmm. psychologist, who um, (laughs) is kind of the, uh, the founder or the she coined the term growth mindset. And, uh, and she's got this idea of the power of yet. And it's like, instead of saying I failed, say, I'm not there yet that I'm learning right now. And that failure is part of the learning. And I think that can sound really simplistic to a lot of people. But I think that when you do embrace it and you, you practice this, you, you engage that neuroplasticity that like those, those new paths, they're not going to be easy at first, but as you continue to say that to yourself, this is not really a failure in the sense that I can't ever come back from this, or I can't make any improvements from here, but this is a learning moment. This is, it really is. And it's not like to shame yourself or anything like that. It's more like to learn and to, to grow from it. And so, like embracing that growth mindset instead of the fixed mindset, when those those you know bad outcomes do happen, when the the uh, plan th- plan when things don't go according to plan, um, <laughs> that's a moment for you to okay, I'm going to get better from this. In the future, I'm going to be even better because I'm going to know you know what what made that happen in the way I didn't I think- want it to happen.
1: And I think your your brain is trying to be as efficient as possible. It's trying to conserve resources, right? And so if there's these things that are happening and you're kind of approaching them with a like, oh, this means that I'm a failure. This means that I'm not going to get there. Your brain is going to be like, okay, then why am I going to ra- waste resources going there? Uh, I was telling Andrew a story before we started about this bike ride that I that I did. I had a a friend that <laughs> rode his bike to, to work all the time. One day was like, let's go riding and, I met up with him and we started riding. I'm like, where are we going? And he's like, oh, we're going to Mount Lemmon and back. And I looked at him, I'm like, what? And ended up being 60 miles, never done anything like that. And he's like, just keep pedaling, right? Uh, and there was these moments where if I was if I was looking down, if I was just looking at my front wheel and I was just pedaling, I could just be in that moment and I could just pedal and pedal and pedal and pedal. And as soon as I looked up and saw how far that mountain was, my body gave up. It was just like, oh, no. And then I felt like I needed to rest. I felt like I needed to get off. But when I was in that moment, there was none of that. I could push through the pain. I could do it. And so there's something about the brain's kind of urges to conserve energy, right? When I saw that mountain and I saw how far it was and how hard it was going to be, my brain was like, why are we wasting all of this energy? Like, no, you can't do that. And you, like I think it's important to, to maybe go back and listen to our episode on the default mode network because it's this kind of self-talk network in our brain. Um, and it's also the network that allows us to see the future. So if you start engaging in all of this negative self-talk, you're actually like sabotaging your future plans because it's the same part of your brain that's planning all of those things.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Maybe we should just spend a second on that because it all, like, on the one hand, it sounds like we, we're saying we should have these long-term plans and these big goals and these detailed you know uh kind of like algorithms or contingency plans uh for how we're going to get there and what what we're going to do if it doesn't work out but then on the other hand we're saying but if you look up at the mountain while you're riding your bike <laughs> you aren't going to be able to get to the top of it <laughs> so like what is yeah, yeah, what, yeah what do you think is the uh, connection well, there?
1: i think in this moment I had no expectation going in that I was riding to this giant mountain, right? The friend that I was with, he wanted to go to the top of the mountain. We got to the mountain and he started riding up and I was like, no, 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 I'm done, right? I, that whole time, I never had a clear purpose. When I saw that mountain, it was a reason for me to quit because I didn't I didn't want to, I didn't start it saying like, I'm gonna ride 60 miles today, right? I'm a bike rider, I, I love doing this. I want to achieve something amazing, right? And because I didn't have those clear purposes, when I did see how hard these things were and they weren't tied to any type of passion, any type of intrinsic motivation, my brain was like, "What are we doing?"
0: Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so it comes back to those values and what why mm-hmm. are you doing it? What's the goal? What's the and uh yeah, you thought you were just going out on a fun bike ride and meanwhile right. it's like Doing this endurance ride. Um, well, then, uh, should we talk? Should we get into some of the neuroscience? Then, I guess we yeah. haven't we haven't mentioned the. Yeah, maybe should we jump into that.
1: Yeah, let's, uh, let's do some of the, the neuroscience and then we can kind of circle back to the psychology. And uh, there's a really rich psychological literature on this, but I think having some kind of view of the brain, what the brain is doing, I think is really important. And I think Andrew just froze a little bit. There he is, he's back. <laughs>
0: yeah, sorry, I'm in connection issues.
1: <laughs> no, no worries. So uh, I'll kick it off then. So um, I think one of the things that was really revealing in the kind of neuroscience world, uh, it was actually early on from damage that had happened to people. Uh, like what happens when people have damage to particular parts of their brain and start exhibiting failures in self-control, failures to plan, failures to do these things that look extreme. I mean, every single one of us in some regards has a failure in self-control, has a failure to, to plan or something, but that's different than walking into a grocery store with a grocery list and not being able to get one thing on that grocery list, right? but still being cognitively there, you can still hold a conversation and all this, but there's just no ability to plan. There's no ability to to go through. Um, And there was, uh, I know Andrew Huberman kind of talks about this at one point, but uh, there's a lot of interesting damage that came out of World War II with uh, the bullets were different. And so they were leaving damage and leaving everything else intact. So there was these really specific lesions that told us about things. but the earliest one was, was Phineas Gage. Do
0: you want to maybe take that one away? Sure. Yeah. Phineas Gage was this railroad worker back in the, I think the late 1800s. And uh, he was working on the railroad and uh, an explosion happened and it shot a a tamping rod, a a big metal rod through his I through his, is it through his eye I think it went through
1: the orbit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Up, through the, uh, front prefrontal cortex and, uh, pro- probably damaged some other frontal lobe structures as well. But it, it, um, at first his physician didn't really think that anything was wrong with him. And this was, this is like a really interesting, like little bit in the history of neuroscience and neurology that it was like, they didn't really have a way of assessing, this self-control, like we do now, like if somebody gets that kind of brain damage now, they're going to undergo these these cognitive tests that are going to like quanti- quantitatively measure, uh, you know, self-control, working memory, these different aspects of of what um, of the you know mental function. But Phineas Gage eventually, you know, it, it he started showing these weird patterns of behavior, like he was. The, I think the quote was. He, his friends said he was no longer Gage. So he was like kind of a different person, much more uh, abrasive and uh, low impulse control. And um, I guess though, so eventually uh, this is kind of a, a case for uh, neuroplasticity and, and recovery from brain damage. He did eventually start to recover some of those functions. And I think the, the hypothesis is that he still had some remaining frontal lobe Mm -hmm. tissue that was able to kind of compensate as we were talking about (laughs) in the last episode for some of those deficits. So he became more like he was before the accident, but this really revealed the frontal lobe's role in these processes of inhibition and self-control generally, um, emotional regulation. Yep.
1: And like social rules, like mm-hmm, all of yeah. these things that we're, we're keeping in mind all the time that are modifying our behavior, and especially like social stuff is uh, something that the frontal lobe is incredibly involved in because so many of the behaviors that we engage in, we do it because we're in a social environment. Uh, the way that we that we smile, the way our eye contact is, the way we hold our posture, the way we sit—so uh, much of that is because of these rules that we've learned, and that our frontal lobe is kind of maintaining. Uh, and Phineas Gage lost a lot of that. There was no more like, "Oh, I shouldn't be talking about this right now. I'm just gonna like blurt out whatever's on my mind." Uh, being very hypersexual, uh, very prone to addictive forces like gambling, drinking, smoking, uh, and smoking, and Something that is really revealing here is that when we started to see different, um, like, so post Phineas Gage, we started to see more localized damage. Uh, There's a region of the frontal lobe, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. So it's kind of in the middle, down in the frontal lobe, that when that region specifically is damaged, you see this really, really sharp drop in self-control. Uh, people are incredibly hypersexual, very prone to, to impulses, to addiction, to all of these different kinds of things. And so it shows that there's this region of our brain that if we use it, <laughs> that we can stop those things, right? We can, we can tamp down sexual urges. We can tamp down, uh, addictive forces like, like drugs and alcohol and gambling and video games and all of these kind of things that are short-term pleasures, right? Um, and the other one was the, the kind of outside of the frontal lobe, this dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which left a lot of that stuff intact. Like they, they were still able to, to kind of regulate uh, emotions and impulses and things like that, but they weren't able to plan. They weren't able to actually put together a set of steps to achieve something. Uh, it was just like in the moment all the time. They couldn't think about five hours from now, two hours from now. Uh, like I mentioned, there was this whole study where they had people with DLPFC uh, damage where they brought them all into a grocery store with, they gave them all the same grocery list and not one of the like seven people actually solved it. Someone like picked up a newspaper and started reading it and just walked out the front door without
0: paying, it, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: paying for it. Uh, yeah, people would just get like, fixated on something that looked really cool and would just like stay there for a long time. Um, and they see this in monkeys too. There was this monkey that would, it would jump up to the the same spot uh, all the time to get a good vantage point of the other monkeys. And it would kind of be there to, to kind of have its place in the hierarchy. And then it had this DLPFC uh, lesion and it would jump there, but then it would like forget why it was there. And like, uh so there's no like continuity of plans so it shows that our frontal lobe is important for two really like key things and that's inhibiting impulses so like tamping down these short-term pleasures and planning for long-term ones
0: yeah yeah that's really interesting and and uh i I think uh, another just good little piece of um neurology is like in that DLPFC general area. Also damage there can impair working memory. So like the ability to hold multiple pieces of information in mind at once, uh, that is also one of these. And I think that goes along with this long-term planning as well. It's like keeping the context, keeping the um, the different things that you're thinking about all in, in the forefront of your mind. Um, so it's like it's, you know, cognitive control uh, generally, but like planning, working memory, um, uh, emotional regulation, behavioral regulation. These are all things that the, the prefrontal cortex does. And these are, of course, super important for self-control, as we're talking about.
1: Yeah. And something that's really, I think, important to highlight uh, is if we're thinking about addictions, What we've seen from the literature with people that have heavy addictions, whether this is like methamphetamine or heroin or whatever it is, uh, alcohol, uh, we tend to see really low activity in the frontal lobe. There's not damage there. Those parts of the brain are not damaged, but they're just not being used for those purposes. Uh, And there's a lot of really interesting interventions that are done with that population that just get them to start engaging it. Something as simple as just thinking about the future. They bring these people in and they just say, think about the future. Like, what do you want to do? Who do you want to be? Like, have just this moment of mental time travel. And that's shown to be really effective in developing impulse control later on. Uh, And so it's just like, we just need to use these parts of the brain that we actually have uh,
0: and engage them in ways like that. So... And that's really interesting. You mentioned addiction, the like low prefrontal activity. And that's also uh, in in a lot of depression, cases of depression, that there's this like inability of the or uh, reduced ability of the prefrontal cortex to exert that top down control over subcortical, you know, kind of limbic, emotionally relevant regions like the the amygdala and the um, the striatum and so there's it's a similar like breakdown of that network in depression where people are unable to like it's like a a stressor can kind of overwhelm the, the whole brain because the prefrontal cortex isn't able to kind of tamp down that that emotional activity and the way that i like to
1: think about a lot of this is that uh the frontal lobe is very new right evolutionarily speaking like this is a Like one of our superpowers that I mentioned as as human beings, right? Uh, The older parts of our brain that drive impulse, that drive us to seek short-term pleasures are really ancient and really powerful. Like they're the ones that have been controlling animal behavior for millions of years, right? And most animal behavior is short-term gain. Like, if you're an animal out on the prairie and most of your needs are centered around finding food, finding mates, finding shelter, you're going to be kind of pulled into the things that are the easiest to get to, right? But now, as humans, we have this incredible insight into what these things do long term, and we can add that to the value of of doing certain things, and we can change the way that our brain is actually interpreting those um, and I think that might be a good segue into maybe talking about uh, value and choice in general on the, the fascinating literature on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. Do you wanna kind of kick that? Yeah. Off?
1: So I think something, if we're thinking about control, if we're thinking about changing our behavior, uh, we need to to really boil it down to to choice, right? Uh, in any given moment, we're making a choice between doing this behavior or doing that behavior, between choosing this food or that food, smoking or not smoking, right? Uh, And what's going on in the brain when we're kind of in that mental limbo, right, of like, oh, should I, shouldn't I? Um, And there's some really interesting work from Antonio Rangel, Uh, that's looking at the role of that that region of the brain that I mentioned that's really important for kind of regulation and everything, the VMPFC, ventral medial prefrontal cortex, uh, seems to be really, really heavily involved in calculating the value of things. And so he's done, uh, he's in a field called neuroeconomics. uh, And so they're, they're looking at like, how does the brain make choices and between this product or that product, between this and that, but what they've found is they've, they've kind of brought that work into kind of the self-control world of like, okay, we have dieters that are making a choice between this and that, right? Uh, we have people that are addicted that are making a choice between doing it and not doing it. Uh, and what we see is that this region of the brain is really, really good at calculating really obvious value traits, right? If you have a bowl of ice cream in front of you, this part of the brain is gonna know that it's really sweet, uh, that it's got high water like uh, count, it's got a certain set of nutrients, like uh, it's gonna feel really good, right? All of that stuff is calculated immediately. But what's not calculated immediately is all of the long-term stuff. And that stuff actually takes effort to be able to include it in the value signal. Uh, so there was this fascinating study that they did with good dieters and bad dieters, right? And they showed the, the people in the scanner pictures of like donuts and cakes and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, and what they found was that the bad dieters, this part of the brain that calculates value was only calculating the like, oh, that looks good kind of value, right? But the really good dieters had this other region, the the lateral portion of the frontal cortex that we talked about that's really important in planning and all of these kind of things. What they think is happening is that it's calculating long-term value. It's thinking about the future. It's thinking about our plans. It's thinking like, no, that cake is not kind of in accordance with this set of steps that we need to do. Uh, And it's actually then sending that down to this value region and saying, you need to include this in the value calculation. And what we see is that like, if that's included, then you start to see the value of the really tasty sugary food start to drop. Um, And this is all like, you see it happen kind of what they call parametrically, that like the more self-control they have, the less activity you see in these regions, Um, that it seems like they're incorporating a lot more of this kind of long-term value, but that takes effort. A really important thing about kind of this, these dorsal lateral regions of the frontal cortex is that they 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 feel like you're doing work when you use them, and that's really really important to to understand.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, and it seems like the the VMPFC, uh, ventral medial prefrontal cortex, and if people want like a visual to think about where this is, um, the kind of the area we're talking about is the the orbital frontal cortex, or it's it's basically just behind the orbits of the eyes, on kind of like where the brain curls over in the front, that underside. Um, it seems like, and I don't know if this is completely supported, but I think that the, like it's integrating all the the different um, kind of ways that we are evaluating things. Like it's like this valuation center and it kind of takes like taylor saying taking all these inputs from different areas of the brain and then ultimately sort of like okay what's the ultimate value of doing this thing what is what's the final summation of of all the different inputs and uh, i guess one part of the brain we didn't mention yet is the anterior cingulate cortex the acc which is also kind of a frontal lobe structure um that is sometimes thought or it, it some some researchers believe it's involved in kind of calculating the effort involved in doing any one thing and so like that would be another input that's coming into the vm pfc like how much effort is this really going to require and uh it's interesting to kind of think about that in relation to those lateral regions the like control uh regions of the pfc being effortful so i and don't know exactly how those get put together, but um, just, just kind of making the point that that VMPFC is that sort of integration and like evaluation, a place where it's all coming together.
1: And the fascinating thing about that, what you just said, so this is the place where it's all coming together. Uh, some people that have been listening to us for a while will probably recognize that this region that we're talking about is also the region that pops up when you're thinking about yourself. The VMPFC is a region that pops up with anything related to identity. Like, does this matter to you? Are you lazy or are you not lazy? Do you own these things? Uh, anything that's related to the self kind of pops up in this region. And so it kind of makes sense when we think about what we mentioned earlier, the power of identity, that this region that is tracking everything that's important to you is also the region that's tracking whether or not you should do something, Right. Really, kind of highlights the importance of spending time on your values, right? Because this is where I, th- this is where I think a lot of those values are being stored. Uh, when we make decisions, we're not in that moment saying, "I'm making this decision because I had this conversation with myself last week about how I was going to be a healthy person and do these things." <laughs> uh, those beliefs are <laughs> under the hood, <laughs> right? Uh, we're we're seeing life through the lens of those values. We're not reflecting on those values in the moment. And so if you can put work in, kind of in the off time while you're being mindful or whatever it is, reminding yourself who you are, what's important to you, then that starts to form the lens that you see everything through, right? If you keep telling yourself that I'm a healthy person, you're now incorporating that in this region that calculates value. That now you look at a piece of food, it doesn't have the same value that it did when you had this view of yourself that you just liked eating tasty food, right? Now it's yeah. like it has this whole other element to it.
0: That's so. Good. That's such a good way of saying that, and and uh, it's also good to note that the VMPFC is. Has connections to these, like direct connections to these some of these limbic, emotionally relevant regions. I hesitate to say emotional <laughs> regions because I don't know, a little <laughs> bit controversial. But uh, but the amygdala, you know, this this region that kicks off the stress response. That when we see something important, especially something negative in our environment, the amygdala activates and, and uh, activates our fight or flight response, and that's really what. makes you feel kind of like jacks up your heart rate and makes you more alert and aware of your environment is that amygdala response, but the VMPFC has an ability to tamp down that amygdala response. So, uh, it might be that, you know, something uh, is causing you anxiety, like the thought of not being able to eat the sixth donut or to not, uh, or that you have to get up early and exercise tomorrow. Um, but, if that is a strong enough value to you if it's a part of your identity like taylor's saying then this vmpfc is going to have a lot better chance of telling the amygdala hey i see what you're saying but shut up right now because we want (laughs) this is important we want to do this
1: my wife is a is a therapist she talks about amy the amygdala and how dramatic she can be (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) and amy A M Y is kind of the uh the uh, the shorthand (laughs) for amygdala
1: uh, Ed, I think this is a, a really good segue into some of the, the psychology. We mentioned uh, Walter Mischel at the very beginning of this episode. And um, I'm not sure if everyone listening, but a lot of people may be familiar. There was a lot of media attention around this, the, the marshmallow test that they did with children. I think the children were like four or something like that. But uh, basically, they they told the children, you can have this one marshmallow right now, or if you wait you can have two marshmallows. Uh, And there was different variations. Some people did it with Oreo cookies or anything like that, right? Uh, And the videos are hilarious. Like if you go back and watch these kids like trying to practice self-control, so many different strategies that are employed. Like some of them will just like cover their eyes and then like start peeking (laughs) at it. Uh, Some of them will lick it, but not eat it. Uh, And some of them will just start humming tunes to themselves or like telling themselves stories or whatever. Uh, And what they found was that the children that were able to delay gratification longer uh, were ones that had a lot of really positive life outcomes later on. Uh, And these aren't like super high correlations. It's not like if you can wait for a marshmallow, your life will be uh, amazing or whatever. But it does show that like they they followed these people. I mean, Walter Michelle's is like 86. Some of these people, they followed for like 40, 50 years And they see things like life satisfaction, uh, uh, marital status, and whether they have like good relationships, uh, how much money they have, like uh, their ability to save, their ability to to be good parent. Like all of these these outcomes were all like significantly higher in people that were able to practice the self-control. And it's really interesting to start thinking about the fact that this stuff can be trained and this stuff is something that, like, if you really understand what's going on under the hood, that you're, like, keeping these long-term things in mind and tamping down these impulses, that that process is what you're going through. And it's it's hard. It feels like friction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's it's people should definitely check out that the video of the kids (laughs) doing the marshmallow test because it's like adorable and hilarious at the same time. I was just going to ask you, Taylor, you have a a son around that age and yeah. You're a social scientist. Have you have you done the marshmallow test on him? <laughs> I haven't haven't done it yet. So so
1: he's he just turned three. Uh, this will be something more around the age of five. We're working on kind of uh, emotional language <laughs> right now. <laughs> but uh, but it is something that uh, is really important to kind of highlight in terms of like development, right? Uh, that these regions that we're talking about in terms of self control. Are ones that are getting more and more developed as we get older. They are the newest structures, uh, and there's a there's a phrase in biology that uh, uh, ontology follows phylogeny, and it's just this really fancy way of saying that development follows evolution. So the things that evolved last are also the things that develop last, and this is why adolescents tend to be really impulsive, is what most researchers think, is because they don't have this like this frontal lobe completely developed yet to be able to keep these long term plans kind of in mind. Uh, It is an experiment. I will do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Randomly selected group of his classmates. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think like that, that belief uh, that you can actually get better at these things, you can change that, that growth mindset that I mentioned earlier is super important uh, for, Mm -hmm. for making change, because if you don't believe that you can, you know, Uh, get on that diet or become that healthy person, if you don't see that in yourself or if you've, you know, even kind of deeper, like a lot of people dealing with kind of mental health issues. If you don't believe that you can be happy, if if you don't believe that like a good life is possible, then getting there is, it's like, you know, you're in the dark. You can't, you're, you're playing uh, darts in the dark, it's like you, you maybe have a general idea of where you're trying to go, but um, your brain really needs that goal that like long term, what are we working towards? And it has to know that it's possible, like Taylor was saying earlier. Yeah. If if you know you look up at the mountain and your legs are already burning and you're you know 30 miles away still, uh, you know, maybe that doesn't seem possible and your brain isn't like, okay, we're not going to expend all this energy, you know, this is like, no, no, no. And same thing with any big life goal and any mental health goal, it has to seem you have to, even if it, if it doesn't seem possible, if it's something that's important enough to you, you know, maybe make that, that little extra, like, I don't know if you want to call it a, a leap of faith or just something like it, it is possible. I've seen other people do it. I I can, yeah. I've maybe sensed it in myself, but uh, I don't, I don't see it right here, right now. That doesn't mean it's impossible. Maybe like that belief that you can grow is, is important.
1: And there's something that I think can be really helpful uh, in all of this that kind of came, uh, Walter Michelle is amazing to listen to. He's a hilarious uh, guy, but he, he talks about the, this, this friction in terms of like hot and cold that, the brain the part of the brain that really wants these like short term pleasures uh these things that are comfortable that are relaxing all of these things uh that's the hot part of the brain really powerful part of the brain it's like stop doing what you're doing like that mountain is too far away like this is stupid what are we doing right uh and it's it's very much concerned with like keeping homeostasis going, like keeping the body regulated, and like it's important to listen to that. Uh, but it's also important to know kind of when hard things are necessary, right? If you really want that change in your life, if you really want to to feel happier, if you want to to be healthier, and all of these kind of things, then that requires some of that friction. And this really interesting strategy that Walter Michelle kind of talks about is that what the brain really kind of, uh, what drives the brain are those those hot representations, right? That what's really like good right now. Um, but hot representations can also be avoidance type things, right? Like uh, if if you're in a dangerous environment, that danger is really hot right now. That's motivating your behavior. Like you don't have long-term stuff in mind during that moment, right? You're like, you're getting away from that dangerous situation. What he talked about was the cool part of your brain is the part that can really contextualize all of this stuff, that can think into the future, make these plans or whatever, that can then kind of cool down the hot spots. But in those moments that are really hard, it's really important to make the long-term consequences hot and immediate, right? To like when you're thinking about the sixth donut or whatever it is, uh, to like have a picture of yourself with your your joints failing you and your your gut twice as big as it is right now and like uh, your teeth rotting out or whatever it is, right? Create this image in your mind that's hot, that's immediate. Like, no, I don't want that. Instead of it being this abstract thing that's out in the future, that's hard for your, your brain to really make sense of, like create something for your brain to have like a representation to cling on to. Um, And he talks about this in terms of like social stuff, too, that like we as a society need to make some of our problems more hot and immediate. Right. Like cutting down the rainforest or like any of these things like like we don't really see the long term stuff because right now we're just enjoying all of these cushy luxuries that we have.
0: Yeah. And he, he, uh, gives us really, really great example of his own life where he talks uh, Walter Michelle talks about how he decided to quit smoking, um, tobacco. Mm -hmm. And because he saw a guy who had markers for the like radiation that they were going to do in the hospital. And, uh, that just, you know, scared the crap out of him. And he's like, okay, that's, that makes it real. I'm not going to do this anymore. And he was able to quit, you know, and, Um, he's probably a guy who has a lot of self-control to be able to just quit like that, even with that hot image, but it's still, it just goes to show that, you know, using that the cool system to make the future consequences hot, emotionally relevant to you. Again, coming back to these values, what really are your values? Like, why are you doing X, Y, or Z or not doing, you know, A, B, or C and knowing that can make that process of making those consequences hot like much easier can make that that process uh, easier to do because yeah like our brains are seem like we are driven by habits and one one region of brain we haven't really talked about or one set of regions is the the mesolimbic dopamine system and we talked about this in our video on motivation because these structures that are kind of near the the center of the brain sort of they're really, really important for driving any kind of goal-directed behavior, but especially habits. They're, they are like these habitual brain regions. And kind of going back to, um, okay, we'll get back to the, the strategies in a minute, but the the uh, PFC damage, there's these um, studies where I, th- I believe it was lateral regions that were damaged, but um, this guy who would he would every time he walked into a bedroom and saw a bed he just started undressing and getting into the bed <laughs> like he was going to sleep because that was that context was his like trigger for that habit to okay time to go to bed time to go to sleep you no know, even if he was with you know someone that like a business partner or something and it was just totally inappropriate it was because his uh his prefrontal cortex wasn't able to hold the the larger social context in mind of, of what was appropriate and and why that habit didn't need to be engaged but it just shows how powerful these these habits can be
1: yeah and it's uh it very much highlights the the like really cool thing about being human uh and it's something that we need to remind ourselves of consistently that we have this ability to do this this mental time travel and i think this is maybe a really important kind of segue into the ego depletion talk um So there's a a giant psychological literature on a term called ego depletion, which is this idea that your willpower can run out, right? If I do something really hard, if I'm I'm trying to control myself in the morning that I'm wasting, or not wasting, I'm using all of my willpower resources, and that means I'm not going to be able to control myself later because I won't have any resources left. Uh, so there's a, a researcher named Roy Baumeister that published tons of kind of papers on this, and started this entire kind of field around this. Uh, and there was, I think, like 600 studies that showed some kind of an effect like that, where if you got them to engage self-control in some way, that the next time you tried to do something, they were unable to engage as much self-control. Uh, and... It ended up, it looked like it was a really powerful, like force that like, oh man, we need to be really careful about conserving our self-control resources and all of these kind of things. Uh, but um, I don't know how many of our listeners kind of know about the replication crisis in psychology. Uh, there have been some, some huge kind of attempts to, to replicate these studies and they're all, most of them are failing. Um and so it's it's really unclear. I mean, 600 studies showed that there was some kind of an effect, but then a bunch of them showed that there wasn't. And uh, there's all of this kind of like there's a bunch of studies that probably didn't show it that never got published. And so uh, there's this, this controversy in the air of like, is willpower something that can be depleted? And just think about that for a second.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like this uh, replication crisis, um, if anybody wants to kind of get, get a little deeper into that. Maybe we'll we'll put some resources in the yeah. description. But I mean, there was this uh one uh researcher, uh Michael In Inslick Inslit, Inslit yep. uh, who yeah. said basically his his conclusion on on this was uh we don't know whether it's real or not, but I don't think it's real. Um yeah. so and he was somebody who did some work on ego depletion mm-hmm. and you know, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on this. I think Taylor probably more so than I, but uh, it does, you know, it's one of these things where, what are, we we're kind of talking before we got on here? What, what are we really talking about when we're talking about ego and will and self-control? You know, cause I was saying maybe there's this, this strong motivational component to it that, that if you don't have the motivation to do something, which is kind of what we've been talking about a lot here. If you don't have those values in place, or you don't, See the value of doing something after a certain point, and you know, your brain is going to kind of go into that shutdown. I'm not going to do this well. I'm not going to, you know, cycle up the rest of the mountain because um, there's no point to it, or it's just too hard. Or I mean, so maybe we should get a little into that, or or yeah, your yeah, yeah. your perspective on that. So, uh,
1: so there's a couple interesting perspectives here. So one of them, uh, Andrews mentioned Carolyn Dweck a lot of the t- uh, through a lot of times throughout the episode, uh, and this idea of having a growth mindset. And some of the early studies that she did with kind of ego depletion, this idea that willpower could be drained, she actually found that our beliefs about whether that was real influenced whether or not we actually exhibited <laughs> those traits, right? And so if we're the kind of people that believes that if I do hard things right now, I'm not going to be able to do hard things later, that that's exactly how I act. But if I'm the kind of person that just like just believes that like I I can muster up the will whenever I want. Like if, if I have a strong, like Andrew said, a strong motivational component, I can bring that to bear. Right. Uh, you have these these people that have done these amazing like physical feats. Like uh, Andrew and I were talking over the episode about these these kind of long distance marathon runners and uh, like David Goggins kind of comes to mind where he's just like, he can just do something, just stay in the moment, and just keep pushing through the pain and doing all of these things. What, what I think may be going on is that it is kind of this push and pull that we've been talking about between these hot and cold systems in that when you start getting tired, when you start getting hungry, and all of these things, these parts of your brain that calculate, like, I need nutrients, I need sleep, are going to start to get louder and louder, right? It's like, it's like, dude, what are you doing? Why are we chasing this long term thing? When I need sleep right now, I'm hangry, right? Like, like, stop. Uh, The friction gets gets higher and higher. But I don't think that willpower can actually be depleted. I think that if you have a strong enough kind of end goal, strong enough motivator that's saying like, I'm doing this because I'm doing it because this is who I am, that that's really what kind of fuels your will. That's what allows you to keep these long-term things in mind and to really kind of say like, look, body, I hear you. Like you're tired, you're hungry, all of this stuff. But like, we have to achieve this. We have to do this right now.
0: Yeah. So I was just looking at a question we got in the chat, but yeah, that's, no, that's, I think the, that's kind of, that's where I land on this. And, um, it just reminded me of this story from, uh, William James, the kind of father of like, uh, American experimental psychology. He, he had this story where he was thinking about the existence or non-existence of free will. And, uh, he was like, okay, well, I'm just going to, do exactly what what this researcher that um, Taylor was mentioning suggested just pretend believe that I do have free will and he said that it was one of the most transformative decisions of his life because it just it opened up all these possibilities. and I'll actually say i I used to be a lot more certain or uh, like <laughs> definitively against the idea of free will. I used to think that, and I, I still kind of struggle with this idea, um, whether it's, it's real or not. But I think that ultimately we do have to make decisions. We have to, there's just comes a point where that occurs. And I do think one of those decisions is deciding whether we're going to act as if we have the choice or not. And a lot of the time that is the difference between uh, making a successful change and not.
1: And I I think that, I mean, not to get into like the philosophical quicksand that is free will, but if you want to achieve change in your life, you better believe that you have the will to do it. Like, (laughs) uh, even if free will doesn't exist, like that, that is something that you should probably just pretend like it exists because these, these types of changes, if everything's deterministic, if everything is just because of this, because of that, uh, I very much fall in line with Joseph Ledoux, Ledoux uh, on a lot of this stuff uh, in terms of most other animals in the animal kingdom are very reactionary type animals and everything that we've been talking about, this hot part of the brain is very reactionary. Something happens in your environment. It causes you to engage in a behavior that's very instinctual, right? That seems very uh, devoid of free will, but that's not the human experience. The human experience is something happens. I reflect on it. I think about what if this would happen? What if this would happen? And I actually can have a deliberative moment where I'm making a choice between this option and this option, regardless of the whatever happened in my environment. Right. So I think that the I think overarching idea that I really wanted to get across in this episode is that uh, our beliefs are really powerful, like and most of us don't spend time actually sitting and reflecting on who we are and what's important to us and what do we value uh, and how does that how does that kind of come in contact with who we want to be? right are they are they like in line with it are they in conflict with it because that's really what's going to give you insight into why you're not changing and it's going to give you the passion and the perseverance the grit to actually go forth and do these things that you want to do
0: yeah that's i think that's a good good cap there we're getting really close to our time and maybe we can address at least one of these questions in the chat from uh, game top hacker says uh, suppose if a human was put in a whole white room and the room is soundproof uh only you can listen to your, to voice your voice there, there to your voice there uh if a three-year-old human is put in the room and you give him the best education will he learn fast well taylor is <laughs> uh, has a three I, I don't <laughs> condone putting
1: a three-year-old alone in a white room uh with the best education like we're social animals um, yeah, the best, best education
0: most, would include other people, right? Would include other people,
1: uh, and it would include kind of social interaction, social modeling, uh, having things that we actually care about. Like, if you want to, if you want to get into learning and motivation, like it's having some type of passion, some type of reason for learning that thing in the first place. Whenever I start any of my classes that I teach at the university, I always start with a a speech at the beginning of the class about why what we're learning is important. Um, and I think it's really important because, like, if if the students in the class can't find a reason for wanting to have that information in the first place, none of it's going to stick. And so, if you kind of if you're devoid of all of this kind of interaction and purpose, and you're just in a white room that has no meaning or anything like that, uh, then that education is not going to do anything. Um, I think something that you might be hitting on is that it's really important to tamp down distractions uh that if if we really want to accomplish things turn off your freaking cell phone uh focus on what you're doing right uh but but yeah
0: yeah yeah and then the second question can you explain adult learning and kid learn uh that might be, that's a whole episode yeah. we'll have to do on learning and memory but thank you for yeah. your for your question in the chat um yeah, yeah and thank you everybody for watching and listening to this episode of the social brain um If you want to support this show and see more of this in the future, uh, we want to keep this free for as many people as possible. So uh, if you can uh, check out our Patreon, there's a link right at the here, I think the top left of your screen, Um, you can follow that QR code or go to patreon.com slash the social brain. And if you want to support us, um, we're going to be adding more benefits in the future. Oh man, we got some more questions here uh, on ego depletion. Uh, yeah, can you examination launch We'll, well, maybe we'll have to do another episode on these kinds of things because yeah. we're gonna have to get going here. But thank you everybody yep. for uh, for checking this out. Yeah, um, and
1: we'll we'll reply we'll reply in the comments too. I uh, sure. And yeah, I have to I have to run. I have to teach class, but I thank you. Like Andrew said, uh, we absolutely love getting the questions. We're going to try to respond to as much as we can. Uh, we really enjoy doing this and something that has really kind of touched me lately. Some people have been sharing like personal stories as we've got into some of the self-control stuff and, and change stuff. Uh, and that's, that's, that's really meaningful to me. Like it really makes what we're doing seem kind of important and impactful. Uh, There's really great ways to support us because we want to continue to do this. So uh, like Andrew kind of mentioned, Patreon, Uh, my wife runs an Etsy shop. So you can check out the link on my channel, but we, we hope to see you in a couple of weeks because we absolutely like, this is one of the highlights of what I do. I like this more than my job. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Well, um, yeah. Thank you everybody again. And uh, we will catch you next time.
1: Awesome. Thanks guys.